SiriusXM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. President of the Center for Humane Technology. Being humane as considerate of human needs and respectful of human frailties, which is to say human vulnerabilities. Technology reform activist. What we mean is by definition, it is knowing things about us that we don't know about ourselves. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Tristan Harris. Now, here's your host, Howard Wolf. There's much talk these days about social media, and much of it is not positive, not positive at all. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and other social offerings are ubiquitous and powerful. They help us connect. They're tools that hundreds of millions of people around the world use on a regular basis. There are many good features of social media, but these tools have a deep downside as well. They aren't simply idle tools waiting for us to use them. They are addictive tools that shape our behavior. These social media sites employ powerful, persuasive technologies that change behavior. And many believe that these applications are eroding the social fabric of how society works, and they leave us with less and less control over who we are and what we believe. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders is a man that The Atlantic Magazine called, and I quote, the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience. In this role, our guest is an indefatigable reformer working hard to make technology ethical and humane. Tristan Harris is a proud graduate of Stanford, having earned his BS in computer science in 2006, where he focused on human-computer interaction and spent time in Stanford's persuasive technology lab. After selling a startup he founded to Google in 2011, he worked at Google for more than four years, most of that time as a design ethicist and product philosopher. In this role, he was focused on how Google's offerings affect the behavior thought patterns, relationships, and general well-being of users, and advocated embedding mindfulness into the screens that people see. For the past six years, Tristan has been on a mission to reverse human downgrading and realign technology with humanity through the Center for Humane Technology, an organization he co-founded and runs as president. And he is a major player in the recent Netflix docudrama, The Social Dilemma, that focuses on the evils of social media. Tristan has issued a warning to us all. Technology, and in particular social media, is not simply a tool. It is a tool with an agenda, and we are its product. Caveat emptor. Tristan, welcome to the show. Good to be here with you, Howard. So I'd like to start all my Stanford Pathfinder shows with a question about your Stanford journey, right? Where were you living when you applied to Stanford? Why'd you pick Stanford over all the other schools you got into? And what is your single 
most favorite memory from your days as a Stanford student? Wow, uh, haven't pulled up this tranche of my hippocampus uh, in a long time. Um, that, that is the memory part of my brain. Um, well, I, I applied to Stanford early. I was a, uh, went, I went to admit weekend. I was a prospective freshman. I think you know my grandfather had gone to Stanford, and I had really always seen it as the natural place I wanted to go for computer science. So, um, you know, I, I was really looking forward to, I really had two dreams. I, I wanted a major in computer science at Stanford, and then I wanted to work at Apple and change the world and become part of the next Macintosh team. That was actually kind of my, my first dream. And funnily enough, um, you know, for your listeners who've, who've seen the film, The Social Dilemma, um, that I'm sure we'll, we'll get into, I actually stayed as a prospective freshman on the floor. You know, they, they let you stay on the floor sure. of the current freshman at Stanford. And I stayed on the floor of Justin Rosenstein, who is the inventor of the like button at Facebook, something like eight years later. And we became friends, uh, you know, from that experience or knew each other as acquaintances. And it's interesting that you can go from the floor of your, um, you know, Stanford prospective freshman host weekend, uh, all the way to being in a movie together that was seen by 38 million people and 38 million households and 190 countries and 30 languages and have it, I think really changed the world in terms of how people are perceiving the issues of, of social media. So I, I think the thing that I got the most out of Stanford at the end of the day is, I mean, there's so many different things, but I think the relationships to so many of the people who are in this, this network um, that have associated with, with the issues that, that we talk about in the film. You know, I actually went to, was the same year as Kevin Systrom, the co-founder of Instagram and Mike Krieger um, was one year behind me. All of us were Mayfield fellows. I think Jeff Seibert, who was in the film, uh, who's the VP of product at Twitter, who's, who talks about, you know, they actually track the number of seconds you hover over every photo. He says, you know, really, they actually track the number of seconds. Um, you know, all of those people were actually all Stanford alumni. And I think, one of the reasons it was possible to access them for the film uh, is through the Stanford network. Um, Cause That's obviously fantastic. Jeff was, was also there. And I don't know if Jeff told you this in his interview, but um, several of us were actually Apple campus representatives. Uh, and so uh, that meant that we were uh, interning for Apple kind of as a remote representative um, while we were uh, at the Stanford campus. And so that's how it all started. Okay. So, it's fascinating to me that your dream was to go to Stanford, then go to Apple and work on the Mac. You kind of did that. And then you founded a company that you sold to Google and you stayed at Google for more than four years, ultimately becoming, and I'll quote this, Google's design ethicist and product philosopher. So let me say that again, design ethicist and product philosopher. That's not a title that one sees very often. So what exactly is that? And what was your role at Google and why was that important? Yeah, well, um, I think important context for your listeners, Stanford has a great program called the Mayfield Fellows Program that teaches entrepreneurship to um, gifted engineering students. And so uh, Justin Rosenstein, the inventor of the like button, co-founder of Asana, who's in the film, was, it, was a Mayfield Fellow. The co-founders of Instagram were both Mayfield Fellows. Jeff Seibert was a Mayfield Fellow. So I was really indoctrinated in a culture of technology entrepreneurship, starting you know, companies and that would change the world and, and learn how that whole model worked. And I think that's an important uh, part of kind of how, what, what kind of connected all of us. And, and when I landed, so, th so that background had me start my own technology company called Apture, in which we were really trying to provide 
a meaningful learning experience. I remember actually meeting with the Stanford Knight Fellows when I was on campus, which is the program for taking journalists uh, sort of off market and get them studying whatever they want for a couple of years and exploring topics. This was back in the year 2006. And we were really exploring, could you make you know, um, digital versions of online news more compelling. And that's actually where Incubated with the Knight Fellows, my first startup came from called Apture, in which we provided instant on the fly um, uh, contextual learning experiences or sort of curiosity experiences to go deeper on news stories without leaving the page. So specifically, you could be on the Washington Post. It would, it would say, you know, Senator Clyburn, you know, voted on such and such. And you could hover over Senator Clyburn, see his voting record, see videos of him testifying on the House floor. Um, and uh, all of that was without leaving the page. And this was on the Washington Post and so on. As a startup founder, what I realized was as much as we had this social purpose or social impact mission in the world, to increase learning and curiosity and education, uh, it really boiled down to this race for attention. And so then come back to my time at Google after they acquired our company, I really became aware that Google was hosting this global competition for attention. The app store notifications, the fact that Android was 70% of handsets in the world and we hosted the Chrome web browser, which was the majority web browser in the world. This global competition for attention was taking place inside of Google's experiences. And that more as a critique of the industry at large, we had a moral responsibility in protecting essentially the human mind from being subversively hijacked and manipulated. And that also leverages, I think, some experiences we may get into around uh, some background I had uh, studying with Professor BJ Fogg um, through his Stanford Persuasive Technology class uh, and connected to his lab uh, that studies persuasive technology. Uh, because it really, a race for attention boils down to a race for who knows more about how to trigger the human mind and to get it to do more and more predictable things, which is really the story of technology right now and the social dilemma, that what started as a race to produce honest society improving technology became this race to the bottom of the brainstem for who can go lower into the limbic system, into our predictability to get us to do more and more predictable behaviors. And that's really what we have to uh, fix now. Realigning technology with humanity. So what does that actually mean? And tell us how that relates to time well spent in that movement. Yeah, well, maybe it's helpful also to connect this back to your question about what does it mean to, to be a design ethicist and, and product philosopher, yeah. I guess I didn't really answer, which is to say that um, when you see that technology is holding the puppet strings of human vulnerabilities in its hands, whether we want to or not, we are using trigger colors like the red trigger color, which will activate your brainstem when you look at the, the phone. If we buzz your phone, we're activating a sort of like a, a habitual, you know, Pavlovian type response. You hear your phone buzz on the table. Everyone else's nervous system around the table starts resonating with that and then wondering, was that my phone? So as you start to realize that whether you want to or not as a technologist, you're bumping your elbow and accidentally triggering all these innate human vulnerabilities and that we needed to be ethical in our design process and humane, which really means considerate of human frailties. The phrase humane, by the way, uh, from our work now at the Center for Humane Technology comes from my co-founders, uh, Aza Raskin, whose father, Jeff Raskin, actually started the Macintosh project at Apple and wrote a book called The Humane Interface, in which he defines being humane as considerate of human needs and respectful of human frailties, which is to say human vulnerabilities. And that's really what drives uh, our work now and what drove my work at Google as a product philosopher 
and design ethicist, which is how do you interact with human vulnerabilities, our desire for streaks, stopping cues so that you know when to stop and you're scrolling, uh, red trigger colors, cognitive biases like confirmation bias, uh, like-minded groups getting together will get more extreme in their views, not less extreme. These are all sociological and cognitive biases and emotional biases that we are playing with as technology designers. And every place we play with one of those biases that we're not aware of is a place where we're actually sending society in a direction that could be damaging and we're not in control over. So we have to become more aware of the vulnerabilities of the human social system and the human psyche to be designing in a more ethical way. And it was through a presentation that I created at Google, uh, basically warning the company that we had this responsibility and we were accidentally weakening people's relationships and leading to a mass distraction culture and all of that, that led to one um, executive at Google um, offering to host me. Uh, and where I started doing work, I called design ethics, which I didn't know what else to call it, uh, and to philosophize about what does it mean to ethically influence um, people's, uh, people's thoughts. And I tried at Google to change you know, Android and our systems and our incentives uh, for about two years in, inside the company unsuccessfully and the reason we left to start Time Well Spent and later the Center for Humane Technology is because I realized that the system wasn't gonna change from within. Um, we actually, the business incentives were too strong and we needed to create an external cultural movement to drive this change. And I had no idea how that would happen. And it's crazy looking back you know, from where we are now where our film has been seen by something like 40 million households and 50 million people uh, and created kind of a cultural awareness movement that you know that was not at all in the cards when you leave Google as an anonymous individual and have no idea what does it mean to kind of wake up society from this problem. So you say on your uh, one of your sites, the technology that connects us also controls us because most of us think of social media as something that's wonderfully connective, right? It connects you with your old friends, your high school mates, your friends that live out of the area. You keep you know with your grandparents, with your parents, with your kids but you say the technology that connects us also controls us. Is that hyperbole or is that in fact the case? Are we being controlled? No, it's, not, it's not hyperbole. And I think one of the, you know, one of my other backgrounds, I'm not sure if I mentioned was I studied magic as a kid um, and being a magician and, and magic is all about being able to influence someone without their being aware that they're being influenced. And I think when we use the phrase in the film, the technology that connects us also controls us it may sound like hyperbole to people because they don't think they're being controlled, right? Everyone believes they're making their own free choices in their life. But the question is, what is the menu that I'm picking from? And did I choose that menu or was that menu being provided to me uh, with different interests in mind? And right now technology uh, and our smartphones and our social media feeds are the menus by which we are choosing to understand reality, choosing what articles we click on, choosing which people we respond to, which relationships are important, choosing what music we listen to. So if you believe Spotify to be the universal library of all music, you would be mistaken. There's lots of music that's not on Spotify, that's not on the menu. And so technology is increasingly defining the menus that all of us are navigating our lives through. And that's what we really have to uh, be, be aware of. So in terms of is it controlling us, I think the other relevant experience here is the lens of persuasive technology, who, you know, a term that came from Professor B.J. Fogg. Uh, when we were studying persuasive technology, the, the, the implicit definition in persuasion is an asymmetry of knowledge or power. The persuader knows something about you that you don't know about yourself. Same thing as in magic. 
if you knew the thing that the magician knows about you in terms of how your attention works, then the trick wouldn't work. But the trick works because you don't know that that's how your mind works. I'll give you an example. Um, if you think of the last two digits of your social security number, um, maybe you don't want to say them out loud. Um, and then I, but if you think of that number, and then I ask you, uh, how many countries are there in, in Africa? Is it more than that number or less than that number? More. Okay. Um, I'm not doing a great job of saying this, but basically what I'm tapping into is something called an anchoring effect where a completely unrelated number, the last two digits of your social security number would actually peg in your mind a center point from which you're going to estimate how many countries there are in Africa. So if you had a very high number like 99, you would, you would estimate there'd be closer to 99 or more countries in Africa. But if you had a low number like 23, you would estimate a very low number of countries in Africa. That's simply through anchoring effect or in salesmanship. You know, there's a famous line from a book called Persuasion, where if you're about to sell someone something and they say, how much is it going to cost? And, the per and you, as a salesperson, you joke and reply, oh, well, it's not going to cost you $10,000. While you're joking that it's not going to cost $10,000, you've actually subconsciously anchored them into the belief that you might be in the neighborhood of $10,000, so they might be more willing to accept a price that's in the $9,000 you know, $9, range, whereas before, if you hadn't said that, it wouldn't have had that effect. So these are all parts of how the human mind works that most people aren't aware of, and in salesmanship or pickup artistry or cults or persuasive design of technology, all of these disciplines are based on asymmetries of knowledge. And so when we say that technology is controlling humanity, what we mean is by definition, it is knowing things about us that we don't know about ourselves. And specifically what's illustrated in the film is when you use this phrase AI or algorithms, a lot of people don't know how to relate to that. But in the film, we actually bring that to life in terms of these three sort of diabolical characters that are sitting in front of this control panel and the control. They are room. diabolical in the film. Absolutely. And, and in fact, Jeff Orlowski, the director was able to get the, one of the actors from Mad Men, which is a fitting pick because, you know, it is about kind of an advertising based business model. And they're trying to figure out what buttons are in your brain that they can push. Right. So when you stop using it for a, a, a while, you stop using Facebook or TikTok you know, the AI character played by Vincent Kartheiser says, oh, show them the ex-girlfriend photos. That tends to bring them back, right? And so we're always trying to figure out what's that thing we can dangle in front of your nervous system that'll get you to come back. And most specifically, the companies are calculating like a chess game. They're testing millions of variations of what's that when you flick your finger on a Facebook newsfeed and the next thing is about to show up, it's calculating and split testing 3000 variations of what could show they could show you next. It's going to keep you there. So you're playing a supercomputer at the game of chess, except your mind is the chessboard. And what it's trying to figure out is what will undermine your self-control. And, and the overall problem isn't that we've lost control of our finger and we're scrolling too long. It's that the contents of what it's showing us um, tear us into tinier and narrow, narrower micro-realities that are increasingly incompatible with other people, meaning... Um, Facebook does better at keeping your attention when you flick your finger of showing you affirmation, not information. If you imagine a Facebook called um, challenge feed instead of news feed, where every time you flick your finger, it shows you a much broader and more complex or even challenging perspective to the one that you have, would challenge feed do better at holding your attention or would confirm you your right feed do better at holding your attention? Well, the one that confirms your view. And so what that means is it takes this shared reality we have 
and shreds it into three billion Truman shows or micro realities in which we're each increasingly confident that our view of reality is correct and the other side is wrong. And it's never been more obvious uh, than with this recent election where is, was there fraud in this election? Was there you know, contamination? Was there um, illegitimate results? If you're on the right, you're seeing infinite articles speculating that there is indeed fraud. If you're on the left, you're seeing infinite articles and evidence that all of these claims are dismissed and it's just one guy and he already recounted his views uh, as a poll worker. And the problem is that these views are not compatible with each other and the consequences they have are tearing our national psyche apart. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. More with Tristan Harris, a reformer focused on making technology ethical and humane. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with technology reform activist Tristan Harris. And you've said something that I find fascinating. You said lies spread faster than truth, and truth can never win online. Why is that? What is it about lies that make them spread faster, and why is it that truth can't win? Well, if you think about what thing, what could I say next that is true? I have to assemble a sentence that is constrained by what actually is true, meaning I can't say anything. Whereas someone who's willing to lie can literally combine words and phrases uh, infinitely without constraint. And so if you imagine two actors who are competing and one is constrained by the truth and the other is unconstrained, which one is going to win? Which one's going to get more clicks? It's the one who's unconstrained. And the stat that we mentioned in the film comes from a Twitter study uh, from MIT that fake news spreads six times faster than true news because you can invent a more salacious spin on any even, even partial truth and have it feel, uh, as we're seeing now with the election, that the entire election was rigged and the entire thing, there's millions of ballots and it's all, you know, you can, you can spin it. So maybe there was in fact 15 dead people or something who might have voted in this election as probably is true for every election. But now I can spin that into there being millions of, 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 of things that, that were uh, fake ballots. And that sounds uh, really uh, engaging and more engaging than saying there was 15 people who were dead who, who voted in the election. And, and this gets to um, a discussion of the democratization of information, right? It used to be in the old days that there were editors, right? And the editors were the ones, the final arbiters of what was true and what was not. And only that which was true could be disseminated through the normal channels. The channels are all gone. Everyone has their own channel now. Everyone gets to say whatever they want. And so the downside of the democratization of information is that we're listening to people that may not know what they're talking about, but we don't know that's the case. That's right. And because Twitter and Facebook, especially being text-based mediums with a profile photo, don't show us kind of, you know, imagine you actually, we didn't have Facebook and Twitter. We just had Zoom calls. So right now I can see uh, a video uh, of you as we're, as we're speaking. You look to be fairly credible and trustworthy, and you've got a Stanford, uh, you know, background behind you right now. Um, you. If, if you had a crazy uncle who was on here spouting, you know, beliefs about ballot fraud, and you could actually see that person and how they were showing up, how they were talking, what they looked like, how they conducted themselves, they might look a lot more crazy than if they're on Twitter, where all I can see is that they have 20,000 followers. They have, they look like they're fairly credible. Their profile photo looks like a real person. And they're saying things that look like indistinguishably credible than any other story I might see on Twitter. And so there's a collapse of our shortcuts that we use to discern who is credible and authoritative and who is not. And as you said, traditionally, we had gatekeepers that we paid money to figure out what is true, what is credible, what is worth our time. And 
ethically as a journalist, you typically take, you know, journalistic ethics and media ethics training, uh, because back in the 1800s, we almost got our country into the, the, you know, war because of yellow journalism. And we, uh, we now know that we can't have a unregulated sort of anybody says anything, anything goes kind of media ecology. We've now decentralized yellow journalism where each of us are not gatekeepers. Each of us are actually yellow journalists. In fact, we get more likes, more followers. We win more times in the fame lottery, the more salaciously we exaggerate our claims. And then because the more you salaciously exaggerate, the more followers you get, the more positive feedback you get because of confirmation bias, you get this sort of weird wormhole warping effect where everyone believes that they're more and more right because there's so many people who agree with them even though they could be just making stuff up. And then you get this kind of capturing effect where everyone, um, to keep that train going, they have to continue to say things that are built upon the foundation of assertions and, and salacious comments that they've made, even if there's no actual backing for it. So it's really in a subtle way warped the entire information ecology. And what we really need to do is reveal that this is the case so we can snap our fingers like a hypnotist and snap out of this 10-year-long process of warping our collective sense-making. The Atlantic Magazine called you, quote, the closest thing Silicon Valley has to a conscience. This is a huge problem you've taken on. How do you sleep at night? I can feel the passion in your voice. I can hear it. I can see it in your body language. You are on a mission. How, how taxing is this on you? This has been a really uh, difficult thing to hold. I mean, imagine also for eight years we've been working on this and really warning that this freight train is, is running away from us. This Frankenstein is dangerously warping how society is seeing itself. But I will say, as much as everything I've shared might sound depressing to listeners, I have never felt more optimistic than right now. And I mean that sincerely, uh, sincerely uh, given that I tend to not always be optimistic um, because we now have 38 million households who've seen the film in 190 countries and in 30 languages and we are building a political coalition to solve this problem. And by the way, that 38 million households and those 50 million people um, includes grandparents who previously would say, I'm proud to send my kids, that I can tell my, that my kids are working at, you know, at Facebook or at TikTok. And now because of the film, they won't feel that way. That includes engineers at Stanford, students who previously would just join one of these tech companies because it's the cool thing to do and it's a cool place to work. And now they're asking questions in their interviews like, hey, Facebook recruiter, what are you doing to fundamentally change your business model after seeing the social dilemma? Because we know that you, what you're doing is toxic. We have policymakers who for the first time know that there's a political constituency they have to answer to, including with the recent passing of uh, California Prop 24, which is the recent pri privacy reform bill, um, a proposition that went through successfully, signaling to Washington that 40 million people uh, actually care about reforming technology. And now potentially, if all goes through, we have a new presidential administration, which actually I think understands these issues and hopefully will take it on as, a big, as big as an issue as economic recovery or COVID-19 or climate change, because this uh, is the issue beneath other issues. And whether you care about climate change or racial injustice uh, or human trafficking, all of those problems depend on us being able to see the same reality to communicate and then to coordinate about how we want to solve it. So it's in everyone's interest. This is in fact the one interest that's non, the one issue that is completely nonpartisan because it's the issue that makes it impossible to solve other issues if we don't. Tristan, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, absolutely. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. Listen to this and other episodes anytime 
on demand with the SiriusXM app or wherever you like to find your podcasts.